the enemy wants you distracted. Uh, I believe that, that the enemy wants you distracted. By definition, a distraction is something that pulls your attention away from the main thing, and the enemy wants you distracted, church. But God is calling your attention back to him all the time. Beautifully, graciously, like a father, he is drawing our attention back all the time. He has made the world and all that is in it to remind you of him. And Satan and all of his demons want to draw your attention from the beauty and majesty and presence of God and put it on the amusing things of this earth. But God is pulling us back and back and back to the beauty and wonder of Jesus, and he does it in Scripture wonderfully. So why don't we open our Bibles to Titus 3 today. Titus 3. If you've got the YouVersion app, you can click over to it. You can go into events, and you can find us there as well. Titus 3, and we're going to be in verse 4. And we don't ever do this, but hey, why not today? Let's do it. Um, Why don't we stand together for the reading of God's Word? This is God's Word to us. Verse 4, Titus 3, verse 4. Would you read with me? Not like out loud, but just read with me. For we ourselves were once foolish, uh, disobedient, led astray, slaves of various passions. That's verse 3. We were passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. You can be seated. Father, I pray that as we read your word, as we study your word, as we think through it today, you would bless our minds, that you would move in our hearts, that it would stir our affections for you, and that we would not just be hearers of a word, God, but that we would be doers of your word, that we would not leave here unchanged, unaffected, but God, that we would be moved by your spirit who dwells in us as your people. God, we love you. We pray this in your name. Amen. I am not a horse person. I've never ridden a horse. I'd like to. That would be fun. I've never ridden a horse. But I did a Google search last night, and the first, the, first, uh, the first link that came up told me these things that I'm about to tell you, so it must be true. And actually, I did, a, I did confirm them with Rachel a minute ago, who is a horse person. She knows about them, so it is true. But in, uh, horses, horses have eyes on the side of their head. I've never thought about this before. But horses have eyes on the side of their head, which is something that a lot of prey have. 
that animals that are hunted have eyes on the side of their head so they can see if they're about to be attacked. So naturally, horses are skittish. When they see things, it makes them scared. So people who have used horses now for long, long time, long time, right? They, they figured out that what we, what we can do to help control horses is put blinders on them, that if we direct the, the sight of the horses, that it makes them more focused, it makes them be able to follow where the rider wants them to go, that they go where the master wants them to go. And so these blinders are just small things on the side of their face that direct them, that, that keep them in line, that help them see in front of them. And it becomes, for me, a, I think a really great parallel with what the gospel should be for us. I think as a church, we should, we should almost have gospel blinders on all the time. Not just like little, little patches on the side of our faces, but just the gospel blinders on all the time. That we're focused, that we've got our heads right, that we know what our purpose is, that we want to do the will of the Master, and we're not going to be confused by all the things on the sides of us that we don't even really need because they're not important. So the gospel gives us these really great blinders. In Titus 3, 4 through 11, really sets us up as a people who have gospel blinders put on. That's, if, you, if you're coming from the text, Paul, again, we've said this every week, and it's good to know your context. Paul is writing to Titus. He's a young pastor in Crete. He's a Greek guy, and the church is rowdy, and he's putting them in order. They're looking for elders, and uh, he's giving them, hey, this is what an elder looks like. This is what godly, mature believers look like. And then in chapter 3, it's, hey, look, look to the outside world. We need to be missional. We need to be evangelistic. And now, here in verse 4, we get this really good news of what Jesus has done for us. We see in verse 3 that we were once lost. We were once far from God. That's who, that's who all of us have been. Those who are Christians, we all were once far from God. But, verse 4, but there's a change. The change is what God has done for us. So the, the gospel gives us these blinders where we say, let's look at what God has done. And what I want us to see in verses 4 through 7, what I believe this passage wants us to see, is that salvation is an overwhelming gift. Salvation is an overwhelming gift. As we look at verses 4 through 7, it's easy for us to just say, look at who God is. Look at how great our God is. Behold. Let's read back through verses 4 through 7, if you would, with me. Verses 4 through 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. So when God's goodness and loving kindness appeared, He saved us. How did He save us? Not, not by, not because of works done by us in righteousness. It's not us, but according to what? His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified, look again here at this phrase, justified how? By His grace we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. God came for us so full of goodness and loving kindness that 
those things were overflowing in his nature to bless us. It's the overflow of his goodness and loving kindness that we experience God in. The Father sent the embodiment of his goodness in the person of Christ. He sent the embodiment of loving kindness in the person of Jesus Christ. There is no evil in Jesus. There is no selfishness in Jesus. He is good, completely good. And when Jesus appeared in all of his goodness, what did he do? He saved us. He could have come in all of his goodness and said, I'm going to wipe the earth clean again. But in all of his goodness and all of his loving kindness, he saved us. What a beautiful phrase. What a beautiful start to verse 5. Aren't you grateful that verse 5 starts with, he saved us? That when he appeared, he saved us. He's our Savior. Jesus came for a purpose. It was simple to seek and save the lost. That was Jesus' purpose. He accomplished his purpose by his very nature because of his goodness and loving kindness. He didn't save us by works done by us. No effort or goodness or kindness from me or from you or from Paul or from Titus or from anyone else could have done this. Remember verse 3. I mean, we ourselves were once foolish in disobedience. We deserved death for our lives of sin. We deserved destruction for turning away from God. We had no righteousness to present God. If we were to go stand before the Father and say, Hey, Father, here is God, here is my righteousness so that you should accept me, we would have nothing in our hands. We would come up empty. We have, we have nothing to present to him. We, we are not worthy. Nothing that could satisfy his wrath against our sinfulness do we have to present to him. But according to his mercy, he withheld from us the punishment we deserved. According to his mercy. Not according to us. According to his mercy. Look at God. Look at God. According to his mercy, he is merciful. He saved us. The only way this mercy can seem good to us, though, is if we believe we need it. Do you see that? What, what I've said about our sinfulness is hogwash. It just doesn't matter if, if, there's not, if, if we don't believe it. Right? For us, I mean, we're, we, the mercy that we need, the mercy that we need only will be meaningful to us if we believe we need it. Eternally, it will be meaningful to you whether you know it or not. But in this moment right now, how grateful are you are for how grateful are you for that mercy? Do you believe you needed it? If you believe it's something that you didn't have, if you believe righteousness is something that you don't have, then it will mercy will be sweet to you. I think about if someone came to your house today while you're snoozing on the couch, hanging out, watching something on, on your TV. If someone came to your house, took your TV off your wall or off of your stand, wherever you have your TV, walked out, boxed it up, knocked on your door 30 minutes later, and gave it to you and said, hey, here's your TV, you would not be grateful to that person. <laughs> Gratefulness is not what you would feel. You say, that was my TV anyway. I didn't need you to do that. I already had that. That's annoying. I don't need it. If we recognize that we never had grace to begin with, then the man who comes, or mercy, or righteousness to begin with, then the man who comes to our door and says, Here's righteousness that's mine that I will give to you. Then we will be eternally grateful for that righteousness. There's no arrogance in our salvation. 
There's no pride in our salvation. There is only love of Jesus who came for us and gave us what we could not have on our own. We had no righteousness before Christ came. We only had our sinfulness and death. But we can be saved. Titus 3 makes it clear we can be saved. How can we be saved? How can we be justified by His grace? By the washing of the Holy Spirit. Consider that you are covered in your sinfulness. My kids love Peppa Pig, and they love muddy puddles. And when they jump in the muddy puddles, they are covered in the mud. It is all over them. I think about we are covered in our sinfulness. We are. It is all over us. There is no escape from us. We can't get it off on our own. But God takes your dead spiritual state. He takes what is impossible for you to remove, this condemnation that spoiled your whole soul, this sin that has all of you spoiled. And we need His supernatural help to remove that sin. We can't do it. We can't take away what has spoiled us, but Christ can through the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's why we pray, Christians. That's why we pray for people to be saved is because it is the work of the Spirit, not our work, that that people are saved. He washes. He regenerates. He renews. The only way for you to be made clean is to be made new. Jesus said that a person must be born again. That's a wild thing to say. Why say that? Why not give us an easier image? How is that possible? Anyone know what he asked? What he was asked? What do you mean? How can I be born again? I'm a grown man now, Jesus. Because we need to be made new regenerated by the work of God himself, born not into sin, but a new birth into his salvation, into his righteousness, by his work and his mercy and his grace, renewed by the Spirit, so that we are not the old sin-covered person we once were, but by the power of the blood of Jesus, the Holy Spirit washes us clean from our sin so that we can be justified before our Holy Father. So how are you justified? How is this spirit washing made available to you? How does this happen? It's the mercy of Jesus, and it is by his grace that you are justified. I think easy ways to remember, mercy is not getting what you do deserve. You deserve death and destruction for your sin. Mercy is that you don't get that. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. We don't deserve fellowship with God. We don't deserve salvation, but it is by grace that we get something we don't deserve. We don't deserve justification before God, but by Jesus's grace, we are declared righteous. It is by Jesus's righteousness. If you're like me, you know that you can't claim your own righteousness. You can only be justified by grace. Your salvation is an overwhelming gift. Your salvation is an overwhelming gift. God takes that dead spiritual state and gives you new life. It's all completely holy by his work and righteousness. And what kind of love is this? What kind of love is this? 
that we dead rebels who hated God, that he would come and without any doing of our part, would draw us back to himself. How sweet, how good. Jesus looks on you with tenderness and compassionate care. Do you believe that today? That's how Jesus looks on you? With tenderness and compassionate care. He looks on you as his beautiful creation and he moved heaven and earth to bring you back to him. He looked on you in your spiritual squalor and filth. An untouchable mess of sin. I think if we could think of ourselves as an object in our sin, it would be, I don't want to touch that. (laughs) Where are my gloves that I can touch that? I I don't want that. Jesus looked at us in our misery of sin. And instead of saying, no, I won't touch that, Jesus said, I love you. Jesus saw you completely accurately. There there was no no glossing over any part of you. He saw you completely accurately and took our most embarrassing and hidden sins and he carried them to the cross. Look at your Savior. Look at your Savior. As I was thinking through this, I just closed my eyes and thought of Jesus. Look at your Savior, the Lamb of God, hanging by his hands and feet on that rough wooden cross. Look at him suffering for your wrong and doing it so you could fellowship with him, so that you could know and enjoy him. Look at the Lamb of God slaughtered for you. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God. you can have no doubts that he loves you. And we can have no response but devoted love in return. How do we respond to this gift of grace and mercy and salvation without devoted love? Jesus, I want you. Yes, that. Jesus, that is better than anything. Any of the amusements of this life. Any of the passing things of this life, I want you, Jesus. We love not out of contractual obligation, but out of an obsessive desire to know him who is so beautiful. If we can understand this, it drives us. The joy of the gospel drives us to the mission. That's why Paul teaches Titus to insist on this clear and beautiful and wondrous gospel. Look at verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. I love the language of verses 8 and 9, especially verse 8 here. Carefully devote yourself to good works. Christian, Carefully devote yourself to good works. As we respond to the gospel, it drives us to want what Jesus wants. When the gospel takes root in us, when the Holy Spirit takes us as his temple, we begin to desire what he desires. 
when we're filled with all the fullness of God, when he fills us, when, when he says, here, have me, we align our will to his will. We begin to put the blinders on. And remember, the blinders serve really two purposes. They keep us from seeing the things we don't need, and they keep our eyes on what we do need to see. Paul says the gospel is trustworthy This salvation by the grace of God, this justification by grace alone, and he instructs Titus to insist on it. Insist on this, Titus. Don't back down on this. This is the hill to die on, Titus. Church, this is the hill to die on. That our salvation is blood-bought by Jesus Christ and only Jesus Christ. There is nothing to add. There is nothing to take away. It is only Jesus. Insist on this. But what happens when you insist on this? Insist on this so that, so that our eyes will be focused on what God is focused on. Our eyes should be on knowing and beholding the Lamb of God. We insist on this so that others might also know and behold the Lamb of God. As we are filled with this truth, as we desire what God desires, we are compelled to good works. That's exactly what this text teaches. When the goodness of God and his gospel are central, then God's people will be careful to devote themselves to good works. Here's a clarifying question for you. What are you devoting yourself to? What are you devoting yourself to? I think that's a really important question for us to be able to answer for ourselves. What are you devoting yourself to? For me, I I don't know that that was a simple question to answer. I mean, in church, we're we're all going to be like, well, Jesus. (laughs) It's got to be Jesus. Yes, it's got to be Jesus, but is it Jesus? Are we devoting ourselves to, to what he wants? What are you spending your time and effort and energy and attention on? And are you being careful with what you're devoting yourself to? Are you guarding your devotion? Are we spending hours of our days, hours of our weeks, days out of our months, days out of our years, devoting ourselves to worthless things? Are you devoting yourself piece by piece to whatever comes along? Or are you intentionally giving yourself to things that will matter for eternity? To some of you here who have been devoting yourself to video games or Netflix or pornography or social media, and you're finding no value from that devotion. God has called you to devote yourself to good works. It's excellent and profitable for people. These good works, what we're called to in good works, is meant to draw people to Christ. It's meant to be pointing back to Jesus. It's not good works for the sake of good works. We can't, we can't pull good works for the sake of good works from the context. Why are these good works happening? Because of the gospel. So what should be the fruit of these good works? The gospel. So why do we go serve at Love Life in Charlotte? Why do we go serve at a homeless shelter? Why do we go spend time with elderly at nursing homes? Why do we go do these things? Because we love people the way Jesus loves people. And what did Jesus do? He served us. That's the way he sought and saved the lost, is he served them, loved them, laid his life down for them. We get to serve people 
and lay our lives down for people to point back to the one who can truly save them. Why are you serving? Because Jesus served me better. When we serve others, there's really no better way for us to have an opportunity to share the gospel. When you think about that Frank list, how do you bless someone? How, 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 do, we, how do we approach the people on our Frank list? Think, how can I serve them? How can I serve them? How can I lay my life down for others? I want to devote myself to good works so that God will use me to share the gospel, so that I can participate. If you're wondering, well, I don't know how to share the gospel with you. I, I, I haven't had an opportunity to share the gospel with people in a while. Where are you serving others at? Where are you devoting yourself to good works? If you're devoting yourself to good works in places with people, then there will be opportunity for the gospel. We devote ourselves to good works for the sake of the gospel. And very quickly, we avoid division. If we, if we have these blinders on, then we recognize that every good work we're doing is for the gospel, that we're not wasting our time just lessening human suffering. We're spending our time easing human suffering for the sake of them knowing Christ, and we're doing that in unity. We're unified in sharing the gospel. But avoid foolish controversies, verse 9 says. Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, a person who has a habit of stirring up division, there's a pattern, after warning him once and then twice, and it's a strong, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is, man, these are, these are not generally words you think that Jesus ascribes to people. But this is what God's word, Jesus is ascribing to people. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. If you are divisive, you don't need the Bible to condemn you. You are self-condemned. But in case you don't recognize that in yourself, the Bible does too. Warped and sinful if you are divisive. Provision Church, there is no room for division in the church. Now, there are reasonable controversies. I mean, there's, there's a reason that he talks about foolish controversies here. But let's be clear. If everything's a controversy, nothing's a controversy. In church, we live in a society that makes everything controversy. I mean, Nancy Pelosi's hair looks bad, and we've got articles about it. Trump's hair is flapping in the wind, and we've got articles about it. Kim Kardashian is famous. Everything can be a controversy. We live in that society, and church, we are easily sucked into making everything controversy. Aren't we? And sometimes we look at society and we're like, I respect this person, I want to be like them. And really what we respect is how they engage and they're controversial about everything. That is not Bible. <laughs> Avoid foolish controversies. Genealogies. Genealogies would have seemed important to the people at the time, but not to the gospel. Who cares about your pedigree? dissensions and quarrels about the law. Like there are some things that matter that are, worth, are not worth our time for they are unprofitable and worthless. What is profitable and worthless, worthwhile? What is profitable and excellent? It is your good works. It is your good works driven by the gospel. Your good works born out of your love for Jesus. It's the gospel itself. That's what we insist on. Church, don't be dragged down into the mud of controversies and genealogies and dissensions. Let's stay with a unified heart on what God wants. Paul deals with the same issue in the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians 1, he starts there. 
And that church was quarreling over who baptized who. And I love what he says in verse 13. First in verse 10, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's like, he's already got the power of Christ in his word. I mean, he's, he, he is an apostle. And he goes above and beyond, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Church, that should be true of us. That when people encounter provision church, they're like, that's a united church. They know what they're doing. They know that their goal is to make disciples who make disciples. They are a truly Christ-centered community driven by the joy of the gospel, making disciples who make disciples. They get it. They know it. They're all on board. We can't be dragged down by foolish controversies. But I, I, love, I love what verse 13 says in 1 Corinthians 1. Paul asks them, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Is Christ divided? Of course not. Our unity with each other is a reflection of our unity with God. We have fellowship with God and with each other. That's what Paul prays for the church. We have fellowship with God and with each other. Our unity with each other is a reflection of our unity with God. And our unity with each other is even more than that, a reflection of God's unity with himself. He sent the church to, to be a light into the world of who he is, a, a dim mirror of who he is. God in three persons is completely unified. He's completely satisfied in himself and is uniquely able as a triune God in his nature to save us. And he is not divided. Church, if we want to honor our God well, we will be unified in our mission. We cannot be divided. The world already looks at the gospel as a message of folly. They rely on the Holy Spirit to enlighten their darkened eyes to the truth of the gospel message. We know that the gospel is not actually foolishness. We know that God is the definition of wisdom and the giver of wisdom and that turning from sin to follow after God is great wisdom. So why would we as the church add actual foolishness to the message of the gospel in our disunity? Why would anyone want to be a part of a disunified church? Yeah, your, your, your message sounds fine, but it plays out terribly. You say Jesus loves you. You say you love each other. You say you want fellowship with God and with each other. You say you serve a unified triune God, but you guys look like you hate each other. Why would we add foolishness to such a wise message? We shouldn't. Let's be unified in following after Christ. Let's be unified in following after Christ. And let's not put up with people who are dividing, who are divisive. I think divisive people are a little bit like glitter, or division is a little bit like glitter. You guys know, if you've ever played with glitter, it starts multiplying. It's like, how did glitter get here? I don't know. But that's the way division works too. A little bit of division, so there's a little bit more of division, so there's a little more division. We have to work hard to protect our unity, church. And that means not letting division go without working through it. That if there is division, we, we, we treat it with urgency. When our priorities are right and Jesus is our great treasure, then we are eager to root out division and be together. And when it seems harsh to say that someone who is divisive is warped and sinful and self-condemned, it really is harsh to let that go if we truly believe that the church is Jesus' bride. 
Church, let's not be distracted by worthless and unprofitable things, foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. They are unprofitable and worthless, and instead let's unify around this good gospel, a Savior who loves us, who died for us, who has made a way for us to be with him. Let's be focused. When we live in unity, we are a delight to God. Psalm 133 says it. And we have the great unifying, the greatest, we have the greatest unifying cause in history. So let's be focused. Let's be focused on the gospel and that we live our lives in thankfulness for what Christ has done for us. I wonder if you've ever trusted Jesus for your salvation. We're about to take communion together. I don't, if, you, if you don't have a cup, this might feel awkward for you, but I'm, I'm per, giving you permission. Here it is. It's not awkward. If you don't have a cup, um, they're right outside the back door. So feel free to stand up right now and grab one. Grab one for you and the people sitting next to you who are like, I don't want to stand up. Um, they're in the back. That's fine. But as we, as we prepare to take communion, it's appropriate for us to consider that gospel. It's appropriate for us to consider the sinfulness that we came from, that we need mercy and that Christ has called us to unity. If you have your Bibles, turn over to Luke 22. Luke 22. Just a few pages back from Titus. Luke 22, verse 14. We see this idea that the gospel drives us to unity in everything. Communion points us to unity, points us to the gospel. We can't be a church without gospel unity. We can't do what God has commanded us for without gospel unity. Luke 22, verse 14 says, And when the hour came, when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. Jesus is setting down for this last Passover. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Don't you love Jesus, how he cares for his apostles? How he desires them? You, you, you just see his, his care and his tenderness. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He knows, Jesus knows what he's about to go through. Verse 16, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took uh, a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Jesus was well aware of his suffering and what he would be taking with him to the cross. And he was hopeful for when the kingdom of God comes. Since this last Passover meal before Jesus' death and resurrection, the church has honored him by continuing to obey this in remembrance of him. And we see this not done individually, separately. We see this done in community unified around the message of the gospel. Today we hold this juice and this bread to remember what Jesus did for us at the cross. We see, we feel, we touch to remember what he did for us. Because it is to honor our Savior because that's what we're doing. Because we're, we're doing this in remembrance of precious Jesus one of the things that we ask is that if you're here and you're not a Christian, 
just hold off on this. Because it, it would be dishonoring to Christ to drink the cup and eat the bread in remembrance of him and yet not claim him as your savior. So hold off on that. We actually have that instruction in scripture that it's, it's for the believer. So I want to urge you not to eat or drink if you're not a, a Christian. And even better, if you're not a Christian, give your life to Jesus right now. I mean, I'll always make that call in the communion. You've heard the gospel. You're a sinner. He died for you. He lived a life you couldn't live. He died on the cross for your sins. He took your place and he rose again so you could be with him. If you call on the name of the Lord, you can be saved. Call on the name of the Lord right now. If you call on the name of the Lord right now, this is for you. To remember what your Lord has done by his grace, by his mercy. If Jesus did suffer and die for our sins, and he did, then we should reject our sins out of a great love for him. So one of the things I also want you to consider as we take this cup is, are there sin in your life? Is there sin in your life you haven't repented of? Is there sin in your life that you're still worshiping over Christ in your life? Now's the time to repent. And it may be that in reverence to Christ, until you repent, you hold off on remembering in this way to not do it in an unworthy manner. In remembering our goal is unity with Christ, it's appropriate for us to search our heart for sin against each other. We want to be unified as we eat and drink together. We want to be unified in what we remember, the pain of Jesus taking our sin and, and our suffering on himself, that he was flogged and he was nailed to a cross, that he suffocated until he died so that we could be with him. Now consider that none of that physical pain that he, that he had compares to the spiritual pain he endured by taking your sin upon himself. This is, this is a reminder of his love for us. So what I want to do is I want, I want to take about 30 seconds. I want to ask you to pray. And I'm, I'm going to bring you back from, I'm going to pray with you and give you instructions on, on taking this together. Would you pray with me for, for just a few seconds? Ask God to forgive you where there's sin, to expose where there's sin, to show, to expose you where you might be divided from him or from others, where you're breaking fellowship. Ask for repentance, ask for forgiveness. And praise him for what he's done for us. Remember what he's done for us. God, we recognize the weight of our sin. We recognize that the desire of the enemy is to have us live in guilt over that sin. But your desire is to forgive us for that sin. And to cast it as far as the east is from the west. So God, I pray that today in this congregation, that those who you're revealing sin to where they may not have seen it before, 
God, that they would not be filled with guilt or shame now, but God, they would be filled with joy in knowing that you're a God who forgives. God, I pray that there'd be great forgiveness in this room today. God, we thank you so much for your life, death, and resurrection, that you made this possible for us to be with you forever. God, we love you. I'm pressing your name. Amen. Look at verse 19 in Luke 22. It says, And he took the bread, and he'd given thanks. He broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Will you also take the bread and eat it in remembrance of Jesus? Let's, let's take that bread together. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Will you also take this cup and drink it in remembrance of Jesus? I think communion is not complete unless we also remember that Christ will return, <laughs> that he is coming again, that he has given us his body and he has poured out his blood for us so that we can be with him forever and soon he will be coming to reign and rule and we should be eager for that day, church, eager for the day that we get to be with him bodily. I want to do this now. I want to pray and uh, we're going to sing one more song together as we leave. I think it's appropriate to sing and rejoice over what Christ has done for us. Will you pray with me? Father, we're so thankful for, for your goodness, your loving kindness that appeared. God, that it's not by our works that we're saved, not in our righteousness, but it's according to your mercy, that we're justified before you because of your grace. God, you met your own standards, and you invited us in with your invitation. God, we are so grateful that we are not, that we are not expected to be righteous enough for you, but that you have only asked for our faith, for us to believe, for our surrender. And God, today, I pray that this congregation would be a surrendered congregation, that we would be on mission together, unified, because we recognize your beauty, because we behold the Lamb who was slain. You are so good. Thank you for paying our debt. Thank you for making this possible. We love you. Praise in your name. Amen.